The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals, and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Nora Gagaudis is a widely recognized expert on what is popularly referred to as the paleo diet. She is the author of the international best-selling book, Primal Body, Primal Mind. And she is also the author of the best-selling e-book, Rethinking Fatigue, what your adrenals are really telling you and what you can do about it. To find out more about Nora Gagaudis, please visit her website, primalbody-primalmind.com. That's primalbody hyphen primalmind.com Nora, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you, sister? Pete, my brother, it's been quite a long time, but it's really great to be with you here. It's always a pleasure to connect with you wherever we are in the world, whether it's face-to-face like this, sitting down for an interview or sharing a a broth or a delicious meal. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take what I can get. Yeah, it's... It's always a great thing. Now, you are probably the most critical researcher that I have the great pleasure of knowing and calling as a friend. And we've had six months or more of this nonsense, as I always call it. And other people will call it something different. Other people will call it a scam, a hoax. Some people believe in it. And I felt like it was time for you to be able to have an open mic and really explain to us from a researcher's point of view and from a spiritual point of view, what is going on? Right. So I got sort of dragged into the whole subject matter, kicking and screaming. I was highly skeptical from the early beginning, mainly, you know, when friends are like, oh my God, there's this virus and whatever. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's an annual event, you know, every single year there is a new virus, swine flu, H1N1, you know, there's their every, you know, Zika and, you know, all of these other things that come at us year after year after year. And every year they're selling us some new vaccine. They're scaring us with, you know, this is going to kill us all. And, you know, we know that the pharmaceutical industry has more lobbying power in Washington. You know, they literally 
supply double the funding, you know, lobbying money, not funding, but lobbying money in Washington of, of big oil. They literally are the most powerful force right now in the media. They're on the board. There are pharmaceutical representatives on every single media network, every single news channel. And as we know, the big conglomerates like Google and Facebook and all these things have pharmaceutical funding behind them. You know, of course, Google owns YouTube and all of that. So, you know, when these things come out, I tend to take what happens in the mainstream with a bit of a grain of salt for a variety of reasons I'll get into that I think are valid. But it became quickly apparent, or at least apparent over a period of weeks, that something was happening on an exponential level that was pretty unprecedented. And it was time for me to do my due diligence, so to speak, and really look into this and see, you know, try to separate fact from fiction in it all. Because I knew there was plenty of both that needed to be addressed. And so I literally dove in and to date now I've put in excess of 300 hours into this whole thing. And I was prepared to go wherever the data took me. And I took my time jumping into the fray because I wanted to be sure I had my facts straight. And I wanted to get my own inherent biases out of the way because, you know, it was something potentially <laughs> extremely important. And I, and I wanted to be sure to get it right. And so, you know, over the time that I have done this, you know, stumbling into this is really like stumbling into a hall of mirrors. There is a tremendous amount of misinformation and disinformation, both in the mainstream media and in the alternative, you know, media. And you have to have good thinking skills. You have to know yourself and understand what your own inherent biases and tendencies and weaknesses and vulnerabilities are, you know, in order to be able to kind of put everything you're seeing into a healthy perspective and really tease out the facts. And that's what I've been doing. And, you know, certainly when it comes to any kind of global pandemic, I will say that it is very reasonable to be questioning the mainstream narrative. There is more than ample reason to do that. And in fact, you know, I have probably come across more scam than substance, but that doesn't mean that there is no virus or that nobody has died or that, you know, it becomes... Yeah, you know, it can be something you kind of got to take each news story, regardless of where you find it, and work it out case by case. And so, so I've done that. And in the process of all of this, I've written a tremendous amount, I mean, like hundreds of pages of stuff. And the first report that I wrote was, you know, I, I shared it with a couple of friends that have good editing skills and also... I know our good critical thinkers understand that there is some reason to be skeptical. In other words, they weren't necessarily prepared to disregard me out of hand. They weren't necessarily going to take what I had to say for face value out of hand. I wanted to know whether what I had put together was something that they felt was going to be appropriate because I'd lost perspective. I was just so lost in that whole quagmire. And they're like, People are going to be completely overwhelmed by this. And I thought, okay, okay. So I decided to regroup and I decided to do what I do best, which is focus on that which is actionable, constructive, and self-empowering, right? 
what is going to leave people, because people are plenty scared enough, regardless of how it is you view this, everybody is afraid. And when you have fear, there's no possibility of having clear thinking. There just isn't. And I wrote about that in my first book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, because I, I've spent more than 20 years working with the brain. And I understand, you know, what it means to have an inherently sympathetically dominant nervous system where you're basically locked into chronic states of fight or flight. One of the first things that happens when you slip into that state is that the blood flow to the part of your brain that makes you the most human, you know, the executive functioning of your brain, the frontal lobes of your brain, where that allows you to evaluate the future in terms of the past, that allows you to rationally evaluate information, that allows you to respond to what's happening around you instead of just simply react. That gets completely cut off. And you're in the moment in, you're basically in survival mode and everything is a knee-jerk reaction. You're either hostile or fearful. And that's everything we see right now. That's everything in the media, everything online. And it contributes nothing to the discussion. So what I wanted to do was provide people with positive, actionable information that was extremely well-researched very well supported with good, credible evidence that I provide for people to double check my facts and all of that. And I created a report. And in it, I did put some commentary, but everything was driven toward a more positive view and vision for humanity, as opposed to just everybody needs to be pissed or everybody needs to be scared right now. And I've gotten thanked by, I've probably gotten, you know, hundreds or thousands of emails from people thanking me for that report. And I make it available for anybody who goes to my primalbody-primalmind.com website. You put in your email address, which I don't abuse, and you'll get a link. Or you can go to primalcourses.com, which is my educational website, and you will get a link to that report. I don't charge anything for it. I actually consider it unethical to charge for that information. And it's 100 pages of extremely meticulously derived research that anybody can use at home right now, that people can use to feel much calmer and, and much, much better capable of sort of navigating at least the concerns about their own health. You know? And so that's the approach that I chose to take with that. But in tandem with that... I realized there are many, many more dimensions to this whole, you know, series of, of global events. It just is just all so unprecedented in all of human history, what's happening right now. And we can't afford to ignore potential concerns and questions that there are around all of the complicated issues surrounding these global events, because I'm sure you'll agree, and anyone with a rational mind will agree, there is far more going on here than just simply some viral spook out of China. And the degree to which that virus is a thing or not a thing or whatever else, and we can certainly go into some of that because there are sound reasons for questioning some of it. There are way bigger fish to fry in the end than a so-called pandemic. And I say so-called because we already know from the data that the deaths and whatever that were projected and estimated and the, all the things that scared us into complete economic, global economic suicide, you know, were based on faulty computer models, as computer models tend to be, and have basically driven us all to the brink 
of total annihilation as a society and as a global economy. And we know that there are people now suffering and dying of poverty, which is known to be the biggest killer in the world. People dying of stress-related illnesses and metabolic diseases and, and other things that are, I mean, 70% of all deaths on a good year come from totally preventable metabolic diseases, for instance. No, no, not infectious illness. This is, you know, minute by comparison. And then we have things like, like domestic violence and child abuse and civil unrest. And we have things like drug and alcohol abuse that have gone through the roof. And there are now mass suicides happening all over the place all of which are almost orders of magnitude more deadly than the entirety of this pandemic has panned out to be. And now we know from data that is on the CDC's own website that really only 6% of all the deaths attributed to this were actually due to COVID on its own. And that's by the CDC's admission. You know, addressing the whole COVID thing, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, I, I got my hands on the first two papers that came out that were published on the subject of this virus, published through you know, peer-reviewed research publication. And in both publications, they made it clear, and I have these publications, that the virus itself was actually never identified through conscious postulates, which is the gold standard of how it is that you identify and evaluate the threat around any new novel virus, you know, that comes along. The virus itself was never isolated, it was never purified, and it was never ever tested for its pathogenicity. All they did was find drawing from some fluid off from the lungs of somebody who appeared to be, you know, suffering from something they assumed to be new. I don't know why they assumed it to be new, but they found a vague you know, nucleic acid genetic sequence that they assumed came from the virus, and they've been running with that ever since. And that is an exception to the rule. They've never done it this way before, but now this is the standard by which, the gold standard by which this is being identified. Well, that and also, you know, this RT-PCR test, which basically takes and amplifies nucleic acid sequences in order to identify the presence of that nucleic acid sequence doesn't identify a virus because a virus itself has, again, has never been isolated or purified. So it's not identifying that. It is not identifying disease. It's identifying these sequences. And there have actually been a few different sequences that have been assumed to be a part of this viral genome. And one of which is actually identical to that of a, you know, eighth human chromosome. And, you know, so therefore it could technically be identifiable just simply from your own human genetic material can, you know, mixing into the testing materials. So it's all a big mess is what it is. And I have actually spent the time and sat down and read all 48 pages of the RT-PCR testing manual. On the very cover of the manual, it states that this RT-PCR test, which is actually not so much a test as it is a biomanufacturing technique, is meant strictly for research purposes and is not meant to be used for diagnostic purposes. It's stated right off the bat. And then you go in there and it, it tells you that if you want an accurate result from this sequencing, then what you have to do is you have to take multiple samples from different tissues in the body 
at least two or three, and preferably on different days. Nobody's doing this. And furthermore, if you get a positive result, it doesn't mean that you have a disease. It doesn't mean that you have a virus. And furthermore, if you're symptomatic and get a positive result, it doesn't mean that whatever that virus is, is actually causing your symptoms. This manual states this stuff. I mean, I've picked the whole thing apart, you know, line by line. And it's astonishing just how meaningless ultimately the results become. Furthermore, there are so many steps involved in that RT-PCR testing process that require just a meticulousness that there's like no room for error. You know, not that there's such a thing as human error, mind you, that, you know, you're already just sort of riddled with all kinds of doubts when you see the results come through. You know, the only thing that's less reliable than that, which literally the results are like meaningless from RT-PCR testing. But you're a lot more likely to get false positives. And in fact, they say that, you know, they're roughly 70%, you know, unreliable results. And you're left to wonder where the 30% accuracy actually is in what you're looking at. The results are just all over the place. And I, I know of numerous cases of people who tested, you know, positive one day, tested negative literally the next day, and then went and tested positive again, or just kept testing negative. And it's all over the place. The only thing less accurate than that is antibody testing. The antibody testing for this, it's not an FDA-approved test, and it's only vaguely identifying coronavirus, which, as we know, a common name for coronavirus is also the common cold, which is, I'm not saying that, the, you know, because there's SARS and MERS, you know, SARS-1 and MERS, and all of that, which are clearly more severe versions, but coronavirus is also the common cold. There are so many different versions of coronavirus out there the majority of which are really not that serious. And so if you happen to have a history of having had a common cold any time in the recent you know, past, you may test positive for the antibody test. It doesn't mean anything. Even if it was testing for this particular SARS-CoV-2 virus, which it isn't, but even if it was, what does that tell you? It tells you that you were exposed to something to which your immune system mounted a healthy response, antibody response. And if you're sitting there and you are non-symptomatic, well, your immune system did its job and now you're immune. I mean, there's, there's talk of taking people that have recovered from this who would technically test positive and using their serum for treating other people that are sick to give them a healthy antibody response to this thing. But that's not the way these test results are being treated. These test results are almost being treated as though people having positives, it's almost like they have HIV or something, right? It's like, oh my God, you know, you are a carrier now. You are marked for life. You have this thing and therefore you need to be subject to forced quarantine. You need to be subject to forced treatments. I mean, all of these things are on the books or on the table, I should say as things that are happening now to people where they're being forcibly removed from their homes and moved to quarantine facilities or being fitted with ankle bracelets that monitor their movements 
you know, because, oh my God, you tested positive. And, you know, in some of these cases, like people have no symptoms at all, but they have a positive test result. Therefore, they're subject to draconian measures. It's bad enough that the testing isn't accurate and that it doesn't help us. But it's even worse when that same inaccurate and unreliable testing is actually applied toward Number one, it's being applied toward the destruction of the global economy because it's being used as the data, you know, that and, you know, they're talking about cases going up, up, up. Well, deaths have been dropping for like 15, 20 weeks now consistently, even as case numbers are going up because testing is going up and and false positives are going up. Look, we've all been exposed by now. If this virus is a real thing in our environment, I'm not saying it's not. I'm saying it's never been verified by the gold standards of science that are supposed to be verifying the existence of novel viruses. So if the virus is out there in the environment, it's something we have to learn to live with. No matter who or what we are, no matter what's going on, it's something that is in our environment. And honestly, our immune system is not going to be protected from this by hermetically sealing in a bubble, wearing a hazmat suit and masks and shields and goggles and gloves, you know, as if there's a noxious gas floating outside, you know, in the front yard, and we just have to sort of hide ourselves until it floats away. It's not going away. So the whole notion of, you know, what happens, you know, when you flatten a curve, you spread it out. You prolong the inevitable. And you weaken your immune function in the process because our immune system doesn't get stronger through antiseptic measures. It gets stronger through natural exposure. We exist as a species having been exposed to probably billions of viruses over the course of our evolutionary history. We're still here because our immune system has learned how to adapt and how to respond to microbes in the environment in a way that makes us stronger, not weaker. And yes, there are going to be some people whose immune systems don't step up to the plate or are already compromised. And yes, we need to take steps to support the immune systems of those people. You know, I, I hesitate to say take them out of harm's way because I'm not interested in violating anybody's civil rights. I don't care how sick they are or how, or how elderly they are. But Yes, we want to support people that have, you know, potential comorbidities that may render them vulnerable to illness. We want to particularly, which doesn't get addressed in the press at all, do whatever we need to do in order to support our natural, innate, healthy immune function. You know, that doesn't come through artificial medical interventions. That comes through what our bodies are designed to do and have always been designed to do. You know, you give your body what it needs in a foundational way. You give it the nutrients it requires. You support healthy immune function. And, you know, people with the healthy immune responses have a near zero probability of dying from this thing. If you're under 70 years of age, statistically, your risk of dying from this thing is if you get infected. That's if you get exposed. It's like 0.04%. It's next to non-existent. You know, you have almost better odds of getting struck by lightning. And so it's, you know, at least 94%, according to the CDC, of everybody that died, died with this thing and not of this thing. They had other comorbidities. 
you know, they had metabolic diseases or they had asthma or they had Alzheimer's or they had cardiovascular disease, or maybe they had literally injuries from serious accidents. And in the end, you know, it was counted as a COVID death because they tested positive for this in tandem with whatever else was going on with them. We know that what happened in Italy, for us, you know, it's like, well, what about Italy? You know, the whole country of Italy, for the most part, was okay during that whole crisis. It was a few localized areas in the northern part of the country where there were overwhelmed, you know, emergency rooms. Well, you have to look at, at the population of what was happening in Italy, for instance, at the time. What was happening in Italy is that you have some of the oldest people in all of Europe, where the men tend to smoke like chimney stacks. It's not a healthy population. Where they literally have the worst air quality in all of Europe. And on any given year, their ICUs are 96% to capacity in any given year anyway. And what happened when this whole thing, you know, hit the press is that there was a panic that was set up and people immediately thought, oh my God, there's a plague. And people showed up, you know, citizens, you know, with, you know, I'm not sure. I don't think I feel very well. I I think I'm coming down with something. I, I bet I have it. I bet I have it. And they go to the emergency room, and because they were concerned about a pandemic, they just automatically started admitting people, even those that had mild symptoms. So in fairly short order, as would be expected in any given year during the winter months in northern Italy, now they had this scare on top of it all, and it quickly overwhelmed the emergency rooms in some areas of the country that were particularly ill-equipped to deal with that. And it wasn't the whole country. It was a few, you know, locales within particularly the northern part of the country. And the vast majority, almost everyone that died, whose deaths were attributed to this crisis, had two or three comorbidities, you know, where you have to ask yourself, did they die of this thing or with this thing? The other thing that's also notably absent is all of the typical annual discussion about the cold and flu season. Nobody had the cold or flu this year. It was all one thing. One of the questions I asked myself looking at this, because of course, one of the characteristics of the lethal versions of this virus are, you know, states of advanced pneumonia. And I thought, well, how many people get pneumonia on any given year? Because I happen to know that, you know, they talk about, they're trying to compare this to influenza statistics. And, you know, the point is well taken, except for the fact that even influenza is typically conflated with other respiratory diseases and is almost never accurately identified with testing. It is really rare for somebody to come in with respiratory problems on any given cold flu season and be actually tested for whatever, you know, to speciate whatever it is that they're being infected by. It's just sort of assumed to be influenza and it's a blanket sort of diagnosis, but it's not necessarily verified through testing. And so I went and I took a look at some of, you know, very highly credible websites that looked at, you know, pulmonary disease and all of that. And they say every year, just in the United States alone, roughly 2 million people contract pneumonia. And of those 2 million people, there are roughly 50,000 or so that are unfortunate enough to die 
of pneumonia. And in almost every case, it's the same story. Other comorbidities, these are the very frail, these are the vulnerable individuals in our society that, you know, this is where it's not necessarily that the flu bug was that lethal, it's that they were that vulnerable. And this was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. So I'm thinking, okay, so you get 50,000 people a year and it's, you know, you most of it through. But the thing is that there are many, many different potential causes of pneumonia, some of which are viral in nature, some of which are bacterial in nature, some of which may be caused as a side effect of certain medications. And then there's aspiration pneumonia, there's stress-related pneumonia, there are all kinds of things. But of course, this year, it's all one thing. It's all COVID, all of it. And anybody with a sniffle or a sneeze or anything like that, it's automatically assumed to be this one thing. Like I say, nobody's talking about cold or flu this year. It's all one thing. And so when they talk about the people that they say all died, the 6% of deaths that were attributable to this, again, you know, all we have to do is just go, I don't know. I mean, based on what? Because one of the other, probably the single most common quote-unquote criteria for diagnosing COVID-19 isn't related to any kind of laboratory test, anything like that. It's just simply the presentation of symptoms. And there are more than 200 different respiratory viruses out there on any given year, most of which are fairly benign, that have the potential to create the majority of the symptoms that we see attributed to this particular pandemic, right? And so all you have to do is show up with difficulty breathing, with headaches, which, you know, show up with a mask and chances are, yeah, you're going to get a headache. A lot of people get headaches just by wearing masks and they show low oxygen levels simply because they are breathing behind a piece of cloth that is impairing their ability to take in oxygen. And, you know, this has been demonstrated many, many times using quality laboratory equipment that people's oxygen levels using virtually any kind of mask, including, you know, full face shields, significantly not only impair your oxygen intake, but also leave you with excesses of CO2, which has serious implications for your health. But regardless, you could have a sniffle, you could have a cough, you could have any number of things. And the other problem that is brought into this, especially here in the States, and I don't know whether the same thing is happening in Australia or not, is that here in the States, hospitals and clinics have been financially incentivized to diagnose this condition for starters, that if you walk into an emergency room and you say, I have a cough or whatever, they are financially incentivized to diagnose you with COVID. If they diagnose you with COVID, they will receive $13,000 from Medicare for doing so. Ka-ching. And if they can convince you to get on a mechanical ventilator as part of your treatment protocol, they get a one-time payout of $39,000. That isn't made up. That didn't come off of some YouTube video. That is very, very well verified in the mainstream press. Don't tell me that that doesn't influence, you know, diagnoses or treatment protocols. And we know that once you're on a mechanical ventilator, your odds of coming off that ventilator are slim and none. I mean, as little as 10%. The ventilators themselves are, and I think most people recognize this by now, 
that mechanical ventilators are one of the worst possible things you can do for somebody that has anything like this because they don't really provide you with more oxygen. They just basically force your lungs to expand and contract. And that mechanical ventilation damages the lungs and sometimes irreparably damages the lungs. It can create clotting. Hypoxia can also generate clotting. That then leads to people stroking out or whatever else. Furthermore, these ventilators are notorious for harboring very difficult to eradicate antibiotic-resistant bacteria that can create very deadly forms of pneumonia. And so once you're on a ventilator, you know, it's like whatever else you're doing at that point to get treatment is sort of like the, almost like the cows out of the barn now. All bets are kind of off. You're really at the mercy of how well your body tolerates that ventilator. And unfortunately, many, many, many people perished as a result of inappropriate ventilator use. And we know that there were ICU doctors in New York and whatever that were sounding the alarm. They're saying these people don't need ventilators. They need oxygen. That the Elmhurst Hospital in New York City, which was the epicenter of this whole debacle, there was an emergency nurse who worked throughout that whole you know, time period at the peak of that whole horrible, horrible thing that was happening in New York. And she said that, you know, the rapidity with which people were sedated and slapped on ventilators was alarming to her. That's in many cases, that was the only treatment people were getting. They're slapped on the ventilators and left to die, basically. She said the only person she saw surviving the so-called COVID treatment in that hospital was a guy who ripped the tube out of his throat. And it turns out he was addicted to opiates, and therefore he had a higher threshold for being sedated than the average person might. And he was extremely uncomfortable by what the ventilator was doing, and he ripped the tube out of his throat, and he survived, and he was the one that survived. I know people personally who were victims of, of all that. The other thing, of course, is the brutality and the inhumanity with which you know, patients are being treated, you know, the, the ways in which they are not allowed to have loved ones with them to not just support them, but advocate for them in hospitals and clinics. And I'm not saying that the doctors trying to work and trying to do and save lives or whatever are horrible people or that they're in on some conspiracy. I'm not saying that at all. I think a lot of them are doing the best they can with the information they have. And unfortunately, you know, the information that most of us have based on, you know, what is being provided by mainstream sources is not that good. <laughs> so, so many of these people are basically left to just sort of flounder and do what they can to try to help or support the patients as they can. And, you know, a lot of people lost their lives along the way because of all the guesswork. And also because of all of the censorship of other considerably less toxic or non-toxic treatments. And of course, you know, we know now, I'm sure you're very well aware of the frontline doctors and this group of physicians, hundreds from all over the world, who have been working with people presenting these potentially, you know, frightening symptoms, who have successfully treated in almost every case when they've caught them and treated it on an outpatient basis, they've been able to successfully treat virtually everyone. And yet these treatments are being censored and completely discounted by the authorities because, as we know, 
they would eliminate the need for much more profitable treatments and, of course, vaccines. And, you know, most of these things are off patent and therefore cheap as hell and widely available and, and in some places around the world available across the counter. But on top of that, of course, we know that in Wuhan, China, there were people, many people being successfully treated with just things like IV vitamin C. I mean, there are peer-reviewed papers showing effective treatment with natural substances known to enhance natural immune function. And really, where you have individuals with healthy natural immune function, you generally have either totally asymptomatic situations or you have mild you know, symptoms and total recovery, you know, 99 plus percent of the time. You know, this is far from being the deadly plague that it is purported to be. You know, it's clearly something that should have been manageable without any real fanfare this year. And I'm sure you've also, you're also aware of Dr. John Ioannidis, who is an infectious disease specialist and professor at Stanford University. And I mean, the guy is as mainstream credentialed as anyone you could ever hope to be in, in the most credible possible way. And he stood up and said, look, you know, based on the data, based on the statistics, based on all of the information that we have, he says, it's entirely clear that had this thing, this virus, whatever it is, had it just sort of slipped into the population, into the environment, as many do every year, you know, unnoticed. Nobody would have blown the whistle or the alarm on this thing. And had it sort of made the rounds around the planet, we would not have seen statistically different mortality statistics this year than any other year. And I mean, that is, you know, that's a holy crap statement. That's basically saying that, you know, this hasn't been any deadlier in the population than any other year. And, you know, if you're counting, COVID cases as COVID deaths, you're way over counting. The so-called cases, you know, they're talking about a second wave, cases going through the roof. Well, they're doing everything they can to increase testing because the more testing they do, the more false positives they're likely to get. And, you know, they get positives, then they can terrify everybody with that. But they're conveniently not talking about the fact that mortality statistics have been precipitously dropping for close to 20 weeks now. Like literally, cases going up, mortality statistics going down. And what that basically is a strong indication of is herd immunity, for crying out loud. And, you know, of course, we know Sweden did this, and they got herd immunity long before the rest of us have been starting to see it. And they didn't have to shut down their economy. They did not have a disproportionate number of deaths. The majority of deaths that they did have were due to hyper-concentrations of people in elder care facilities. And the health minister there admitted that they made a mistake with that. They really should have isolated, you know, taken people and not concentrated so much in one place. And so it was the majority of people that in Sweden that died were really, you know, elderly cases, you know, and also cases of, of comorbidities like anywhere else. But they certainly didn't have any greater mortality statistics than any place else. And it was hard hit. Japan, you know, they had like less than a couple hundred cases in the entire country. And I mean, that's a country that has, you know, they talk about, well, New York had so many cases because it's such a concentrated population center. Has anybody been to Tokyo? <laughs> you know, you want to talk about a concentrated population center. 
And yet there were no mandates around mask use, no mandates around physical distancing, by the way, neither of which have any credible scientific data to support the practice of. Whole other topic, but there just is nothing. There's no credible science to support the idea that masks are protective, that they prevent disease or infection. And in fact, there's quite a bit more evidence to suggest that masks actually may do more harm than good. And even Fauci himself said the very same thing on a televised interview, which I happen to have a recording of, and I have, you know, I've got his quote. And he basically said, nobody should be walking around with masks, you know, that they, you know, might make you feel better, but they really don't do anything. They really have never been proven to do anything. And he was actually being accurate for a change because the actual science supported those statements. Now everything's backpedaling. Now they're talking about adding face shields and goggles and, you know, gloves to the whole equation. And it's like, it's almost like at every turn we're being tested. How much more are we willing to put up with? As deaths go down, draconian restrictions and mandates go up. What's up with that? We need to be asking ourselves these questions. And, you know, it's, like I said, there's misinformation, disinformation, you know, in the independent and alternative news sphere, as well as the mainstream establishment, you know, propaganda, which, by the way, is loaded to the gills with misinformation and disinformation. And it's everywhere. It's utterly pervasive. And it's really tempting, I think, for a lot of people in the mainstream, you know, kind of joke you public, you know, to want to rely upon fact-checking sites, for instance, to help guide them through this quagmire. But unfortunately, all of the mainstream fact-checking sites, quite literally all of them, you know, have their own questionable funding and their own questionable, you know, sort of shady alliances and agendas. So it's up to us as thoughtful, intelligent individuals to do our own homework, you know, do our own due diligence in order to vet the information that we're being presented with. You know, we're being confronted with this hall of mirrors and, you know, with respect to today's events on so many different levels. And we need to tread carefully. We have to be diligent. We have to be responsible. If we're ever going to navigate our way toward any semblance of truth or solution to this mess and not simply, you know, be walking into walls at every turn because there's just too much at stake here. You know, we have to pay attention. So, I mean, I have some ideas about navigating all of that. And I took a few notes because I want to give people some information, some way of thinking about this that's useful and not just simply say, well, just don't believe anything you hear kind of a thing. In my view, you always have to watch for whether what's being reported supplies you with documented evidence that you can further readily access and that you can examine for credibility and for verification, right? You always want to avail yourself of those references as much as you possibly can. Do your homework and don't just simply accept anything for its face value. You also need to consider the source, you know, and you also want to look at potential conflicts of interest that may be involved with that source for one way or the other. You also want to consider what and who their sources are and what and who may be funding them. All right. Don't just simply rely upon things like, oh, I don't know, listening to your gut. You know, when it comes to determining what's believable and what isn't, you know, your so-called gut can deceive you. And, you know, we all have our confirmation biases, right? Our comfort levels about what we want to believe 
and whatever else. And it's very easy to be lazy and just simply say, oh, well, that sounds right. That resonates with me. And so therefore I believe it. Don't let that happen to you. Don't ever believe something or someone simply because you want to, right? Be aware that the most successful pathological liars always rely upon roughly 10% truth in order to sell whatever it is that they want you to believe. So adding in that little pinch of truth seasoning tends to kind of automatically lend greater palatability or credibility in ways that can be disarming, that can lead to that sort of gut sense resonance, I guess, you know, that what you're hearing is true. It's human nature to want to fill in the gaps and extrapolate quickly so that we don't have to do the hard work and really vet the details. It's really important to resist this tendency. You know, resist what I like to call pseudo-intellectual pareidolia. Also, watch out for emotional manipulation and generalizations and sweeping statements and extreme language. And watch out for anyone disseminating fear that's not also working to explore meaningfully constructive, actionable, and not overly simplistic solutions. Uh, be extremely leery of anyone telling you to simply trust the plan, right? Or perpetuate the idea that someone, be they a politician or some beneficent vigilante or sort of shadowy superhero, if you will, is going to solve your problems for you, is going to swoop in or save you in any way. You know, you need to be leery also, in my view, of the word hope, which gets tossed around, that, you know, sort of subconsciously implies that there is something external to you that's going to fix everything. The seductive idea, you know, of hope, of course, was capitalized on in a relatively recent presidential election, I should say, that shall remain nameless at the moment. But promulgating the idea that everything is going to be okay and that you don't have to act in any way, right? understand that things are not always simply cut and dried and that there's always gray area and ambiguity to consider. Often, you know, we're dealing with layers of an onion that have to be peeled away with care, right? We have to be careful about what we're doing. You have to realize that there may be many layers to this that need to be kind of teased out. Sometimes it just takes, you know, tweezing through a whole convoluted body of information in order to pluck out, you know, a few truths, you know, and separate them from untruths and unverified information. You know, sometimes truth is relative and contextual. You know, it's important to recognize that too. And we need to understand that there is no shortcut to understanding the truth about our world, right? There's no one source that we can all rely upon for that. We have to resist the temptation to simply fill in the gaps when we hear a narrative that appeals to us without doing at least some of our own fact-checking. And I don't mean fact-checking using mainstream sanctioned, you know, fact-checking sources like Snopes or Pointer, Reuters or NewsGuard, Wikipedia, Microsoft's, you know, Edge, which is basically a NewsGuard extension, you know, mobile browser, God forbid Google, you know. I'm sadly becoming suspicious of DuckDuckGo now as a search engine, and I've actually switched over to something called Quant, Q-U-Q-W, rather, A-N-T, and another one called Swiss Cows as a more unbiased and non-censoring, non-tracking type of search engine where you're more likely to just come up with a variety of information that is, you know, objectively gotten through these search engine algorithms more organically as opposed to in a contrived fashion. 
you want to be cautious when it comes to overtly sensationalistic or fear-mongering language. But conversely, it's also important to be extremely cautious when it comes to like rainbow pony and unicorn language that tells you that all you have to do is think good thoughts and avoid the negative for everything to be okay. You know, that one is a psyop if there ever was one, right? Just take people away from thinking bad thoughts. Don't look at bad things happening. No, no, no. Just sit there in your little, in, and gaze at your navel and just trust everything's going to be okay. Trust in the plan. That is bad advice. It's always okay to say, I don't know, or I haven't fully vetted this yet, or this is my thinking about this, or this is based on the incomplete information that I have so far. In other words, disclose when you're stating an opinion rather than a fact. Or, you know, I'm looking into it, but don't yet have enough information to say one way or the other about, you know, whatever. And it's okay to do that as long as you're disclosing that's what you're doing. I know that exposing the dark underbelly of our current events is uncomfortable for a lot of people. It's tempting to write it all off as mere conspiracy theories or fake news, which is the new buzzword, because we all know that just because somebody calls something a conspiracy doesn't mean it's not true. (laughs) There have been plenty of verified conspiracy theories over the years. But it's always been used to sort of disarm and and ridicule and and marginalize people that are just simply questioning what they're being spoon-fed as a mainstream narrative, which we have a reason to do, and I'll talk about why that is in a minute. But people just call things fake news with a wave of a hand, and then they don't have to look at it. Most of us are already overwhelmed by everything happening in our lives right now, and taking on the bigger picture seems like too big and too daunting of a thing to handle. Most people seem to prefer the simplicity of the idea that a virus is responsible for unraveling their world. That's easier for them to take than the idea that there is something bigger and darker behind all this. That just shuts people down left and right. I know many people, they're like, you know, you might be right, but I'm sorry. I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to sew my masks, you know, and I'm just going to believe that it's a bug that's going to go away and then everything's going to go back to normal. And that's an unfortunate point of view. Most people, you know, or many of us anyway, are just trying to survive right now, you know, economically, emotionally, spiritually, and also health-wise. And we're all awash in this sea of confusion, chaos, and uncertainty. We're all longing for simplicity and ease of truth. We may be unconsciously addicted to fear or anger or cynicism, our egos, our magical thinking, or our need to avoid maybe potentially inconvenient truths, right? It's important to know yourself on that level and understand where your weaknesses and vulnerabilities lie. Self-responsibility is the name of the game right now, folks, and self-knowing and self-honesty are your best means of exercising personal responsibility and your best path, you know, toward arriving at any truth. So if we're going to navigate out of this mess, we have to have the lights on. We have to be prepared, you know, to look at what's there when we turn the lights on. We have to be prepared also to supply our own light source while we're at it and be willing to look honestly and candidly at the obstacles that we face you know, unless we're willing to see them, there's literally no hope of navigating around them, right? And you're simply stumbling around in the dark, either pretending you're asleep, you know, sleepwalking, or you're making excuses about the fact that you can't see. And it doesn't help to try to imagine what's there by either mentally fabricating obstacles and boogeymen, or simply proclaiming that there's nothing there because you can't see it. You know, this is no time for excuses. This is no time for self-indulgence or avoidance. 
the choices that we make right now are going to literally make or break our future as a human society, but not to mention our very survival, not just as individuals, but literally as a species. That is how serious this is, of what we're facing right now. Rampant fascism, and God knows there are a few places in the world seeing it more blatantly than you are in Australia, and I, my heart just aches for you there. But rampant fascism and dystopia are upon us right now. It's happening. This is not some fictional novel by George Orwell. 1984 is 2020. It's happening right now, and it's far worse than anything that George Orwell or the brave New World or New World Order, as it is, we might say, of Aldous Huxley ever ventured to imagine in their worst nightmares. You know, Benjamin Franklin once famously said, security without liberty is prison. Let that sink in. You know, the permanent walls, the electronic fencing and the razor wire are going up, folks. The forces of technocracy, which is what I believe that we're actually dealing with, is as a source issue in all of this. And there is certainly quite a bit of evidence to support that. But the forces of technocracy, mass surveillance, transhumanism, artificial intelligence, 5G, mass censorship, medical fascism, and the destruction of all human sovereignty are very very real, okay? You know, the thought police exist, right? And they're coming for you. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to pretend it's not there? Are you going to simply, you know, cower under your bed or distract yourself with television, you know, dancing with the stars or video games, drugs and alcohol? Or are you simply going to passively acquiesce because it seems easier, you know, makes you know, not make waves because that's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable to make waves. Are you going to cooperate obediently? Are you possibly even going to align, you know, with the perpetrators of this by pointing your finger at your next door neighbor or attack, shame, and bully those that dare to stand up or question those things that you are too afraid to? Are you simply going to become a mainstream sock puppet or troll you know, because it helps you feel powerful in the face of powerlessness or courageous in the face of your own cowardice. Literally everyone right now is either part of the problem or part of the solution. I mean, there isn't a lot of gray area in between. You're either seeking the truth behind the current events and trying to do something about that in a constructive and peaceful way, or you're just avoiding it. I mean, which one are you? We may be asleep or pretending to be asleep, and even if we're experiencing fitful sleep, it's never fun or pleasant to be awakened and told that your house is burning down, right? But sometimes you just have to deal with reality and freaking do something about it, you know? Lest everything that ever mattered to you in this world, all of your freedoms, your health, your ability to support your families, your ability to choose or decide almost anything for yourself and your democracies, and to go up in ashes. So what can we do? Well, we can start to question everything in a healthy way and start doing our own homework with diligence, objectivity, integrity, and self-honesty, right? We can all engage in small or large acts of peaceful civil disobedience, whether this means, you know, attending, again, peaceful mass protest rallies in solidarity like they've been having in Berlin. They've already had two such rallies in excess of a million people which of course the press didn't want to, you know, it was sort of a media blackout around these events around the world. But there were thousands, tens of thousands, or in the case of Berlin, over a million, because, you know, they're a little touchy in Germany about 
you know, fascism coming in and closing down an open democratic society. They know something about that. And so they know that they can't just sit at home on their thumbs and be complacent about what's happening. So it could also mean simply saying no to unhealthy and wholly ineffective, dehumanizing and symbolically enslaving face coverings, you know, forced business closures, forced isolation and distancing from those that you love, from people who need you. You know, human touch, by the way, just human touch is as much a nutrient to us as a species, as is nourishing food, fresh air, water, sunshine. We die without it. And, you know, what do they do in, you know, these prisons that are basically torture centers around the world, your Guantanamos, your Abu Ghraibs, these horrible places where people are held and tortured in untold ways for untold years? What do they do when they want to really punish someone? They put them into isolation because literally nothing can be more detrimental to human beings than that. And yet now this is being mandated for the general public among healthy individuals. What the hell, you know? And there is actually no science to support. I mean, I was shocked to discover this. I really would not have expected this. But when I looked to find what is the science behind social distancing, there isn't any. There's really nothing to support the idea that keeping your distance from people in public places meaningfully protects you against, you know, respiratory illness. It just, it's kind of a non-issue for the most part. Obviously, if you live with somebody that's sick, you know, then your risk of contracting what they have goes up substantially. You're sleeping in the same bed, you know, you're, you're, you're cooking your meals in the same spaces, you're sitting next to each other on the couch for hours on end, whatever. But even then, you know, that's not a slam dunk for infection either. You know, so much depends on the health of your own immune function. So, you know, we can find also safe ways, you know, far away from conventional mainstream social media platforms, right? Because we know those aren't safe anymore you know, to communicate, to gather, to share ideas and solutions and work together toward positive change. We are at our best as a species. You know, we're, we're social tribal species and we're at our best when we're in community with one another. You know, we need to focus on what it is that we share in common with our fellow human and not focus on where our differences lie as we're conditioned to do. There's never been a more powerful divide and conquer strategy than the one that pits you against your own neighbors, your family and friends, simply due to ideological or political differences, which, you know, that's the real epidemic right now. And it, this includes heated politics and all these other, all this other useless, you know, divisive rhetoric we're all hearing. Set an example of constructive, respectful, decent, and courageous behavior. You know, we need to avoid the pageantry of distraction that is the mainstream news, the mainstream politics, social media feeds, and other sensationalistic online bombardments. Turn your television sets and social media feeds off. Seriously. They're not helping you. We can evaluate our strengths and our unique passions and harness them toward taking action in some specific area that you may have unique abilities or connections in. We all have our strengths. We all have our areas that are areas of expertise or you know, know-how or things that we really care about. And we don't all have to be doing the same thing, but we, we should all be taking those strengths and applying them toward a more solution-based 
mentality toward this whole thing. And so, you know, we can all speak out, either verbally or in writing, over any or all of the mass injustices that we're seeing right now, like the destruction of our economy, our social fabric, human rights and physical sovereignty, you know, complete destruction of those things, and what's demonstrably a clear concerted form of forced mass societal suicide that we're dealing with. We need to not just be meek and kind of keep to ourselves on this. We do need to be speaking to one another in a way that is respectful and that is not polarizing, right? And I, it's a delicate balance sometimes. But I'll tell you that I make a point of speaking to almost literally everyone that I come into contact with, whether it's a service person you know, whether it's, you know, I go into a store, I was at an auto parts store the other day for a couple of hours while my vehicle was getting worked on. And I ended up having just a powwow with all of the employees there. And I will tell you 75 to 85% of the time, even where I am here in Portland, where I'm telling you that, you know, there is a whole lot of brainwashed mentality here that is really disconcerting to me. But even here, it is 75 to 85% of the time, people are like, yeah, it's, it, you know, a lot of this seems like bullshit to me. You know, like people are really questioning what they're being told. They're really questioning all of the mandates. They're questioning, you know, all of this stuff. But that said, you know, then they go out and they, you know, kind of, you know, with their head hung down, they sort of shuffle along with their masks and standing in their little circles and not making waves because, in part because I think a lot of people believe that they're alone in their questions and concerns because we're made to feel alone. We're made to feel there's something wrong with us if we're questioning what we're told by the mainstream authorities in this situation. But also because it's just simply, it's easier. It's easier not to make waves. Well, I'm telling you folks, we're not going to have another chance to get this right. We really need to be acting now. And we all need to be playing a part in this as much as humanly possible. Because at some point, because the walls are going up so fast, you know, the walls and the razor wire and, and the restrictions on our personal liberties and freedoms and everything that we hold dear are going under, you know, fascist restriction at an alarming pace. And at some point, we may not have a second chance to get this right, to turn the tide, so to speak. It's kind of a now or never deal. And I believe in, in the philosophies of people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi, who, by the way, were extremely effective in what they did. And I'm not saying that they, you know, that they didn't leave aspects of their work undone when they died the untimely death that they did, but they made change. They made measurable change, and they did it peacefully. And the moment we abandon that peaceful approach to things, I think we abandon all, you know, we basically relinquish all credibility. And we stoop to the level of, you know, of those that are imposing these things on us. So I don't have easy answers. And I know that, you know, I really love... You Aussies, a great deal. My heart is so very much with you right now. You know, I've been watching with horror what is happening in Victoria, you know, in Melbourne. And 
I've long recognized, you know, I mean, Pete, now you and I are, are both old veterans with this, you know, we have long recognized the dangers in your government. But what you're seeing now is orders of magnitude worse than anything imposed by Nazi Germany. And, it, and it's clear that the worst is yet to come if you let it. Your government appears to be using the same playbook, honestly, as Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, you know, Mao Zedong, Pinochet, you know, and every other despot that ever successfully shut down and took fascist control of an open and democratic society. Only it's not a dictator that is taking control of your lives. This is something unique in all of human history because for the first time ever, I mean, none of these dictators, as horrific and horrible as they were, ever had access to the kind of technology that we do today. The biotechnologies, the you know, 5G and, and all of these other things that are infiltrating our lives and have been slipping in under the radar for decades now. And all of a sudden we have arrived at this crescendo, this crossroad in history where all of this has the ability to coordinate in a way to govern our lives, not at the behest of a specific dictator, if you will, but govern our lives through algorithms, through faceless, soulless algorithms. Because data is the real economy right now. It's all the data being collected on you is being plugged in and the GPS data, where you go and who you socialize with, you know, who you hang out with. Every single purchase that you make, everything that you do in your life is part of some massive database that is being used to determine what you're going to do next, how you think, what you value, where your vulnerabilities are, and the arbiters of your future freedom of what it is of whether or not you have a bank account or not, or whether you, you know, whether someone sees fit to delete your bank account because maybe you're just not obedient enough. Your ability to choose or have any control, you know, what medical procedures that you end up having required of you that you need to subject yourself to by some mandate, whether you live or die is all going to be determined ultimately by these algorithms. And, you know, obviously, if we want to know who's in control, we look at who has been responsible for putting these cogs into place and who are writing these algorithms to begin with. They're the ones that are going to be impugned to those controls and those measures. And they're going to be able to scavenge off of, you know, the bloated carcass of humanity like maggots. They're going to be able to feast with impunity on whatever's left over, you know, of us. And if we let them, you know, I think to some degree we need to be rejecting some of these technologies. For starters, we need right now, in, I mean, yesterday, I gave a talk back in 2018. I was talking about some of these issues already. And there was a talk that I gave at Montana State University. And that talk was called Navigating the Matrix. It was the riskiest talk I ever gave. It was also one of the most important. And I was shocked when I got standing ovations as a result of that talk. Mm. Well, I will say thank you, Nora, for 
that amazing talk that you just did and shared with us. What I find difficult to wrap my head around is how can the governments of the world, majority of them, be playing out this all at the same time? I really just can't understand, you know, with New Zealand, Australia, USA, Canada, UK, Europe, Russia. Like it's just. All of this is just a little too coordinated, doesn't it? And again, I mean, I, I think that there is good evidence to question at the very least, but I, I think there's better evidence than just questioning that these technocratic interests have been weaving this web for a very long time. And there is plenty of evidence that there was advanced planning. I mean, it's, you have to be a little bit naive to look at event 201, which occurred just a couple of months before the first cases in Wuhan were being diagnosed and whatever else, this tabletop exercise where they did a simulation of a coronavirus pandemic. And they had all the same players sitting there around the table that are currently making policy and participating in this whole thing on a global scale. There was something called lockstep. There was a document that I make available in, on the page that I spoke of earlier that houses my report that literally it reads like a play-by-play of what's happening now, and that was written in 2010. So, I want to ask you the question, though. Yeah. Human beings, knowing that the fallout of this, as you said, the suicides, the deaths, the loss of income, like... I can't fathom. There's no rationale unless, without going into disbelief. Right. My family and I have been using beautiful, high-quality essential oils for the last 20 years to live healthily every single day. Now, if you're passionate about health and are ready to step into leadership, I want to invite you to partner with my team and I to build a beautifully successful doTERRA business. Register at PeteHLC.com backslash Pete. That's Pete, HLC, which stands for the Healthy Living Collective, dot com backslash Pete. Like, well, here's the deal. I mean, I, I think this is, this is our fatal flaw, if you will. Neither you nor I would ever willingly deceive people and cause mass suffering and take advantage of people's fear in a way that destroyed their lives, and fed our bank accounts. That is not who we are, and most people are like us that way. I don't, you know, most people in the world are good and decent people and like to think of themselves as good human beings that want to do right by others, that want to be kind to others. And it's almost impossible we have a tendency to see others through the eyes of our own filters, of our own, you know, we tend to assume that others are similarly inclined to be decent and good. It's very, very difficult to take in the idea that somebody could be so willingly callous, who could be so genocidal as to do this without conscience. But, you know, you know that I've spent more than 20 years working with the brain. And 
one of the things that was an area of specialty for me, actually, for quite a long time. And I literally had people from out of the country fly in just to work with me for like a year, you know, was working with sociopathic disorders, you know, mostly what I got were children, you know, who had been adopted or, you know, had come from situations where they had serious structural brain problems and and functional brain problems that literally there was no capacity for conscience in them at all. They were either full of fear or full of rage, and those are the only two authentic emotions that they had. And, you know, the worst of these kinds of cases is something referred to as reactive attachment disorder. Alan Shore, the wonderful, you know, biopsychologist, you know, talked a great deal about all of this and how the right orbitofrontal hemisphere of the brain is, you know, requires you know, early attachment, early maternal attachment in particular, and, you know, the ability to develop that affect regulation and develop all the things that make us most human through the earliest interaction with our mothers in an intimate way where there's a lot of eye contact and touch and all of that, that helps kind of inform our capacity for bonding to other people, our capacity for authentic emotional experience and affect regulation and our capacity for conscience. And when, for whatever reason, maybe mom wasn't around, if, if she was working 10 jobs, she meant well, but she couldn't be there, or she was strung out on heroin, or maybe she read one too many Dr. Spock books and decided to just leave you screaming and crying by yourself to toughen you up when you were a baby kind of a thing. There's a part of the brain that doesn't get to develop properly. And the brains of people that have the capacity for sociopathic behavior, they don't work the way, you know, your and my brain works. And they literally have a completely different type of brain function, of perspective. And, you know, we think of these people as, oh, well, these must be all the serial killers or these are the people in, you know, overflowing our prisons and residential treatment facilities and, you know, places like that, you know, committing atrocities or whatever. And yes, there are those cases like that, that are certainly some of our most dangerous criminals, but there's also a faction of people that have this type of brain that are highly functional. They may have brilliant left hemispheres. They may be perfectly charming. But they, you know, a sociopath basically, as a helpless infant, without that maternal bonding, without that foundational process of developing that affect regulation and everything else, the only authentic emotion an infant has in that environment, because you know, they're completely dependent, they're vulnerable to, they're relying upon the adults around them for their very survival. And when that's not there, the only emotion that they have is just terror. And as they get older, that emotion of terror ends up getting replaced with rage. And they may be able to create, you know, to sort of fabricate other emotions as the script calls for it. Oh, the script calls for tears, so I'm going to cry now they tend to have a fascination with human emotion and particularly human suffering because it's something that they see that they have the power to inflict 
these are the kids that pick the wings off of flies and set, you know, pour gasoline over kittens and set them on fire and, you know, that are sadistic to animals and children. That's one of the early signs of this sort of thing. But the only way that an individual like this ends up feeling secure is if they are in a position of total and complete control. And they tend to be very manipulative, very manipulative, very controlling. I mean, I worked with so many of these cases and I was really successful at helping turn around a lot of these cases because I understand the nature of the problem. But I actually, I found, you know, I, I actually enjoyed working with those populations, believe it or not, because as long as they were with me, they wanted to manipulate me into liking them. So they tended to be charming and, and likable and whatever else. But, you know, their parents were terrified they were going to get knifed to death in their sleep by these kids. And no matter how much they were loved, you know, no matter how much discipline the parent applied to them, nothing worked. And with these populations, you know, psychotherapy doesn't work because in order for psychotherapy to work, you have to be able to form a bond, you know, with the psychotherapist. And these people aren't really capable of that. You know, people are tools to them, just something to use, a means to an end. People are all useful idiots and something to be manipulated just to get at whatever it is that they want or to help them feel good about themselves or whatever. But, you know, medications don't work either. I mean, you can drug somebody into a stupor for a while, but that's not a long-term solution. And there was some good work done by you know, a colleague of mine who worked in a residential treatment facility in the East Coast and had worked for many, many years with these populations. And extrapolating from the work of Alan Shore found that if you did neurofeedback training on, you know, near the right orbit of prefrontal cortex, and you, you know, that part of the brain in, in people like this is totally on fire. It's just spun out of control. It's just whirling around. And the amygdala of the brain of somebody like that, which is the fear center of the brain, is very quick to learn, very slow to unlearn. It's so overwhelmingly, you know, on fire that these people feel that they're in constant danger. Therefore, they have to totally manipulate and control everything around them at all times. And if we're able to train that part of the brain into relaxing and calming down a bit, they start to warm up a bit. And it doesn't necessarily solve all their problems, but it does provide them with, it does seem to open up a conduit through which other interventions can then more successfully take place and help them navigate out of that state, which is kind of remarkable, actually. It really speaks to the fundamental, you know, like for instance, when it comes to foreign languages, you know, many of us have heard that unless you've learned to speak a foreign language by the time you're like 13 years old or something, you'll probably never be able to get fluent in a foreign language because those parts of your brain just sort of are no longer as plastic as they were when you were younger. And you're just never really going to be able to gain mastery like you would have if you had gotten exposed to foreign languages at an earlier age. But our fundamental need for human connection is so foundational to who and what we are as a species, that it seems that that door can always potentially be cracked open. It's just a matter of the right intervention. But, you know, going back to what you were saying, because I got, you know, way off on a tangent, I think it was an important one, but I think it's hard for us to take in the idea that there can be so much of this in the world. 
and that such a mentality could even exist because that's not how our minds work. It's just not how our minds work, how most of our minds work. And therefore, because we can't comprehend anything that incomprehensible to us, we tend to kind of give people the benefit of the doubt. We tend to trust that they mean well, that everything is being done for our own good. Some of this is simply social conditioning, which is what technocracy is all about, social engineering. And we've been, you know, led for a long time to just simply accept authority. And, you know, the whole educational system, I mean, like I say, you've got to connect dots from a lot of different places to make sense of this. And I never just rely on one thread of, you know, information. I come at these things from many, many different angles, and I look at where these things intersect and where those things intersect is where we're likeliest to find truth, in my view. The educational system for a long time, you know, certainly here in, in my country, in the United States, has been eroding. We have, you know, no child that left behind, which I like to call every child left behind. And things like, you know, common core, or as I like to call it, rotten to the common core, which are these educational programs that basically promote rote memorization of certain accepted facts and completely discourage critical thinking altogether. They don't just not teach you critical thinking skills. They literally discourage any questioning of the mainstream narrative. It's all multiple choice, and you only have these choices when you're answering a question on a test, and you can't, you're not allowed to think out of the box and question that there might be another answer to the question. And it has eroded an entire generation's capacity to not only think critically, but think creatively. And it has laid the groundwork for creating a mainstream narrative that people are just willing to go, well, that's what I'm supposed to think, so that's what I think. And it's, it's been a conditioning process. You know, this all, of course, started with John D. Rockefeller, who was the father, if you will, the dysfunctional father of our, of our educational system in the West. And he was famously quoted as saying, I don't want a nation of thinkers, I want a nation of workers. Well, he got mm. that. I have one other question just to finish with, if that's okay. So if we have sociopaths at the helm, which... To some degree. And I, I, there are sociopaths and there are people that are just sort of unwittingly getting dragged along. Mm -hmm. you know what I mean, I don't think everybody that's involved at every level of government or the healthcare system or whatever is sociopathic. I'm saying mm -hmm. that there are these people that have demonstrably done more harm than good. <laughs> You and I were on stage a few years ago in Sydney. Yeah. And there was a question from the audience about vaccines. Yep. And you said, I'm not going there. Well, I <laughs> said, you need to understand that we've been threatened. Yeah. That we were literally threatened if we so much as dared utter the V word that we would be shut down completely. Mm -hmm. Or worse. Fast forward to now. And it doesn't seem to be a topic that's contentious anymore well it is contentious oh, but it's, it's like we, we could have a, a conversation about it now in australia well now that they have the mandates in place and the you know the thing is when when the controls are in place then you know they figure what's anybody going to do about it anyway i mean it's interesting mm -hmm. i i guess my finger's not on the pulse entirely of what's going on in your country and how things are allowed i do know that anybody talking about vaccination here and vaccines, you know, the simple rational issue of vaccine safety are heavily censored, heavily censored 
by the well it seems to it seems to be a conversation that we can have now and my question to you is if it does become mandatory i have a feeling that new zealand or australia will be the first to roll it out possibly or victoria if they're sociopaths and what would be the agenda of that is it a money-making venture or is that something a little bit more nefarious well, well it's power and money of course is power but power is, is an end not a means right so you know for instance you know all this talk about vaccines i don't think that vaccines are actually the end point of this i think that technology is the end point of this and injectable technology you know, for instance, the Gates, Fauci, Moderna vaccine contains biotechnology, GMO biotechnology, nanotechnology that has never before been used in another living thing. And you would never normally be able to force somebody to be that kind of a guinea pig for something that is completely new. But if you piggyback it on something like a vaccine where nobody's allowed to say anything bad about vaccines and you just call it a vaccine, well, now you've snuck that technology in through the back gate. I think what this is about is control through technology and all manner of technology. And what greater control can anyone have than control over the physical body of every living human being that can have an inroad? to every function inside of your body. And that represents sort of the holy grail of control that, you know, people like Hitler and Stalin couldn't have even begun to fathom. You know, I'm sure they'd be salivating over it. And I think that where it's going to start is not with mandates. I think that what they're going to do, because, you know, your prime minister was initially saying, well, yeah, this is going to be mandatory. And then he backpedaled and said, no, no, no. Obviously, we can't hold you down and force you. So therefore, you know, we will encourage. Well, the encouragement is going to be the threat of either revoking certain rights and privileges that you may have as a human being to travel or to, or maybe to control your bank account, maybe to control whether or not you're allowed to live with your own kids whether or not you need to be imprisoned or somehow otherwise detained or quarantined because you're unwilling to willingly accept these vaccines. I can tell you that, and again, and I've looked at this heavily too, just even from the standpoint of the vaccine question, that they have attempted many times to create RNA coronavirus vaccines for the common cold, for SARS, for MERS, SARS-1, rather, they tried numerous times to do it. And the reason we don't have one is twofold. Number one, every time they got to a phase of testing this on living creatures and on a whole variety of living creatures, that it was almost entirely lethal to them where they initially showed a robust antibody response to the artificially induced, you know, antibody response or whatever to the vaccine. When they actually got exposed to the wild virus, it was almost entirely lethal. And so they abandoned the development of coronavirus vaccines, RNA coronavirus vaccines, because, and that's why we've never seen one in actual use anywhere, because they are known to be so deadly and so dangerous. 
And the other issue with coronavirus vaccines and you know, these viruses themselves is that they are notorious for rapid mutation. And if you create a vaccine for a particular strain of these things, by the time it's out and being administered to the general public, it's already been mutated, you know, and what people are getting exposed to and what they're getting vaccinated for are two different things, and therefore it's just they don't work. And that's also, you know, problematic. And of course, even Bill Gates now is saying, well, you know, it's clear that it's not going to be 100% effective, so it's going to take multiple doses, right? It's not just like one shot and you're done. They're talking about multiple, you know, multiple vaccinations. And these things, the Moderna vaccine itself was tested on a group of volunteers. Well, they were, you know, paid volunteers in the Seattle area. And what Moderna did was they selected for the healthiest possible population they could find, right? And what they chose as a group to test the vaccine that they had available that they wanted to test were the youngest, healthiest, most fit, athletic, you know, nothing wrong with them. They were completely cleared of having any symptoms or problems of any comorbidities of any kind or any, you know, issues of any kind that could have complicated things. These were like the Avengers. They were so healthy. And they had a high dose group and a low dose group. 100% of everyone that got this vaccine experienced some manner of side effect. 20% of those in the high dose group had, you know, where they received more than one dose of the vaccine, the side effects were so severe that they had to be hospitalized. And, you know, they didn't represent the average person in the general public at all. The people overweight with diabetes, you know, with autoimmune diseases, with asthma, you know, with God knows what, or with other illnesses, or, you know, other potential complicating factors. None of that has been taken into account to date. And among the healthiest people that have received the preliminary doses of this thing, which they completely misrepresented in the mainstream media, you know, they all experience side effects, but some of them experience side effects so severe as to requiring hospitalization. And, you know, this is what we have to look forward to. And then we have people like Bill Gates who are right now knocking on doors all over the planet to governments saying, hey, if you want this vaccine, you're going to have to give me legal indemnification thing that happens as a result of that. And that's the thing here. It normally takes anywhere, you know, from seven to 12 years or more to create a vaccine. We're talking months. And there's no way that's going to have a good outcome. It will have a great outcome to people who are lining up to profit from that, but there's no possible way that this is going to have a good outcome in the general population. Many, many people are going to suffer and die as a result of these vaccines. They're going to be compromised in ways that may be irreversible. And, you know, the thing is, there's no liability. There's no recourse for that. Say your child dies as a result of that vaccine or you suffer you know, permanent debilitating, you know, neurological or some other form of damage to your well-being that incapacitates you in some way. You have no recourse. There's no place for you to go. It's on you to deal with it for the good of everybody, right? We know that we already pretty much have herd immunity. So, you know, obviously there are trillions of dollars to be made. They're talking about, well, nothing, you know, but Bill Gates waving his arms like a spider monkey in front of the camera saying, well, no, you know, you think you have a choice, but you don't. Nothing goes back to normal until pretty much all 7 billion people have been 
vaccinated, you know, we need to question that, you know. I don't know when he became a doctor, much less the most powerful doctor in the world. And, you know, we need to look honestly at his track record to understand what it is that we're getting ready to subject ourselves to. And, you know, we need to be willing to do our due diligence when it comes to looking into the backgrounds of the people we are entrusting our health and our futures to. Because I'm here to tell you that if you really are willing to do your objective due diligence, it is not a comforting picture. So really, you know, as I've commonly said, you know, no one's coming to save us. We're the ones we've been waiting for. And it's up to us to do what it is that we need to do in order to safeguard our health, our lives, our liberties, and our future, our freedoms and our future. You know, the good news is that it was no more than, it was actually less, significantly less than 5% of the early American colonists that had a problem, you know, big enough problem with imperialist British rule that they decided they needed to mount a revolution, right? And it was enough. It wasn't pretty, it was chaotic, it was bloody, but it was enough. And we don't need absolutely everyone to understand what we're talking about. We don't need absolutely everyone to agree or to come along. All we need is a meaningful tipping point, right? All we need is a meaningful tipping point. And so if everybody, you know, within earshot of this does some part to contribute to a positive solution toward meaningful civil disobedience, which because at this point, honest to God, I don't know what else we can do. We're running out of options. We have to just unequivocally stand up and say no to things that are destroying our freedoms in exchange for a false sense of security. You know, I believe it was also Benjamin Franklin that said those who are willing to trade their liberty for security will neither deserve nor receive liberty or security. And I think people out of fear are handing away their personal rights because they're scared and they're being told that, you know, no, this is what you have to do in order to be safe. I don't think we've ever been less safe as a global society than we are now. And what is imperiling us is not some viral spook out of China. It is those that have either you know, they, whether through design or through opportunism, you know, are taking advantage of that to completely subvert our inalienable human rights on a global scale. And there's no place to run. There's no place to hide. We all like to think we have our hiding places and it just ain't happening. You know, in Nazi Germany, you could at least, you know, get in with somebody who was part of some underground who could get you out where you could go someplace else and be safe. We don't have any place to go. There's no place that's safe. We all have to kind of take our stand and be very clear what line it is that we're not willing to cross. For some people, they're, I'll wear the mask, but I'm not going to do the vaccine. And some people say, absolutely, I will not do the masks. I see the mask as basically just sort of a symbol, really, of acquiescence to the state. I don't really see them as anything scientifically validated as protective or helpful. 
in any way. I see them as actually doing much more harm than good to your health, as well as to your freedom. So with everything that we acquiesce, they're going to push back and push us further back and further back into a corner until there's no place left for us to go. And then they'll have us on our knees and there will be nothing we can do. This is really the time where we need to, you know, not take shortcuts when it comes to determining the truth and where we need to take our health very seriously in a foundational way. You know, one of the things, you know, if I can say something at least a little bit self-serving is that, you know, I, I've created this, this online program. It's called the Primal Genic Plan. I call my, my approach to things now. I don't really use the term paleo anymore. And I don't even like the term keto anymore because I see that there are as many different versions of these things as there are people claiming to practice them. I hone everything down in a highly specific way and everything I do is geared toward health optimization. Everything I teach is toward health optimization, not just macronutrient ratios or weight loss or whatever, but really toward a more complete convergence of factors that can lead to health optimization. And so I've created something and I, I've you know trademarked the term primogenic to help distinguish what I do from whatever else is out there. And it's a three-week meal-by-meal total health transformation program that's designed to kind of handhold people through a kind of structured way of adopting this way of eating also while, while helping people understand where the pitfalls are, you know, where the sticking points are and what they can do to overcome them. Certain things that may address certain specific types of persons or needs or goals that they may need to modify the plan a little bit for their own, you know, unique needs. And, you know, it's very affordable. And I'm certainly, you know, happy to give your viewers a, you know, 30% off on that, you know, I'll provide you with that information after we get off here so that you can do that. But when it comes to, you know, the thing that characterizes the deadly aspect of all this, everyone's concerned about you know, hypoxia, right? The supposedly what, what characterizes this, you know, unique novel coronavirus condition is our states of pronounced hypoxia, you know, sort of like altitude sickness or whatever. Well, an effective state of ketogenic adaptation improves your body's resilience to hypoxia. It protects your brain, it protects your tissues. And in fact, it's becoming the darling of alpine climbers and Everest climbers and things like that, because they're able to be much more resistant to things like altitude sickness, and they're able to be much more clear-headed and have a much greater endurance when doing these high alpine climbs in an effective state of ketogenic adaptation. And the other aspect to the hypoxia, of course, is all the mask wearing. I promise you, if you are walking around with a mask on your face all day, a face covering or whatever they call it, you're in a chronically hypoxic state. I don't care what anybody says. You are in a chronically hypoxic state. You're also effectively wearing a Petri dish strapped to your face. You know, you're breathing into this warm, moist environment and into cloth or whatever where bacteria is growing like mad and viruses, you know, whatever you've inhaled virus-wise is accumulating there and maybe fungal, you know, spores and whatever else that you're then re-inhaling deeply into your lungs. And you know, on top of everything else. And the risk of secondary infection just as a result of wearing the masks and getting sick as a result of wearing the mask is a very, very real concern, you know. And I have an article coming out that is actually looking at all of that 
I've already written it. It's just being formatted and it's getting ready to be uploaded to, you know, the page with my report. All the science is there to show you. It's unambiguous. I don't make any proclamations about anything that I don't have credible evidence to support. And so you'll be able to, you know, peruse that evidence and see for yourself. There was a recent study done in Nature Medicine that literally took people who were confirmed to have both influenza and coronavirus, and they were all sick. They were all coughing. They all had fevers and everything else. And they put them into a laboratory environment, and they tried to measure the viral shedding that these people were putting out, and they couldn't find any. (laughs) It was kind of amazing. I was shocked to read this paper. They just literally said, you know, after 30 minutes, they didn't find really any detectable viral shedding in people that were sick. You know, well, there goes the theory of asymptomatic transmission, right? Pretty well out the window. And all of this is the very basis behind which these mask mandates are predicated upon. You know, it's like the threat really isn't there, you know, in any kind of meaningful way. They said, well, we could have gone more than 30 minutes or we could have done some forced coughing to see if we might have had more, you know, viral shedding. But honestly, they were not able to find any measurable viral shedding happening in a laboratory environment where they had all of the instrumentation, all the measurement devices there to record whatever came out of people. I mean, that's kind of a slam dunk right there. Mm. But there's a lot more than that. <laughs> we might have to get you back for round two, Nora. <laughs> yeah, I'm just warming up, man. I think you know. <laughs> I, I do want to thank you for, for being you, for being the warrior spirit that you are and being so grounded and doing the work on yourself over the years as well. To, you know what I'm talking about, but yeah. to turn up, over and over and over and over again for your fellow human beings when you are a searcher for truth and a speaker of truth. With, yeah, I'm with, definitely with, a truth archaeologist. And, you know, I'm a freedom fighter by nature too. I'm just very, very interested in seeing the self-empowerment of others. You know, if my motivation were money, I'd have some. <laughs> you know, that's never been what has gotten me up in the morning or driven me. I've spent more than 20 years working in a clinical capacity with suffering individuals, hundreds of them, and where I had to look in their eyes, you know, a couple times a week. And I got to see what worked and what didn't. I'm not just an armchair researcher, somebody that sits back and just, you know, watches a few YouTube videos and think I know something about something. I really do my homework almost to the point where, I mean, it's actually gotten worse over time where I'm afraid to say anything unless I put a hundred hours into something because there's always a way, you know, you can be wrong, you can slip up or you get suckered in by something and then later it's like, oh, I wasn't careful. You know, there's too much at stake. There's too much at stake. We all have to be so careful and so responsible about how we approach this. But part of that involves recognizing the fact that it's also incumbent upon us to ask the hard questions and not just simply accept whatever narrative is being spoon-fed to us, you know, by CNN. I'm here to tell you, if that's where you're getting your information, you're doing yourself more harm than good. One thing I do want to comment on real quickly, and I kept saying I was going to get to this. Back in 1947, there was a new agency that was actually sort of 
illegally created in the United States, called the CIA. And the very first person appointed to head the CIA was a man who had been an attorney to Rockefeller called Alan Dulles. And one of the first things he did when he came into that position was he created something called Operation Mockingbird, in which they injected 400 CIA operatives into all facets of the news, print, and radio media of the time. And this was designed to control the social narrative and the news narrative in a way that would basically benefit the military-industrial complex, that would benefit the Pentagon at the time. By the time all of this, and it was completely unconstitutional, and as such, in 1976, I believe, the Church Committee exposed, you know, all of this. And actually, Bernstein, of Woodward and Bernstein, he wrote an article in Rolling Stone magazine, actually, about this whole thing. I mean, you know, you can look it all up. Operation Mockingbird was a real thing. By the time it got exposed in 76, by the church committee, and they started slapping wrists and whatever else, they're cracking skulls and taking names, there were already 3,000 operatives that were active throughout the media. Many of the iconic media faces of the time, Walter Cronkite and, oh God, I can see this guy's face and I don't remember his name. Anyway, a lot of these bigger names were CIA. And this is why, you know, for instance, something like the Gulf of Tonkin incident was allowed to spark a war that spanned 16 years and cost 55,000 American lives and probably close to 4 million Vietnamese lives based on a lie, based on an incident that never even took place, that was exposed through something called the Pentagon Papers. You know, that some conspiracy theories are real. Whole wars have been fought, predicated on lies. Of course, we remember the Iraq War, right? The weapons of mass destruction. So, you know, are we really prepared to take these things for face value? So at the time, you know, they ousted the then CIA director, and I'm forgetting his name off the top of my head. I'd have to look at my notes. But, you know, Papa Bush, you know, George W. Bush Sr. stepped into the position of running the CIA at the time and said, yeah, yeah, well, we don't do that anymore. Really? Why wouldn't you? you know, why should we believe an organization that lied to the American people? you know, for 20, 30 years. So at any rate, back in 2013, our then president signed into law the amended National Defense Authorization Act. And there was a little tiny modification in there that allowed for the propagandizing of the American public using all facets of televised online radio print media without the American people's knowledge or consent. It's a real thing. And it's now quote unquote law. However, it's not constitutional law. And so it's basically an illegal law, just like the, you know, forced detention of people that president may deem to be an enemy combatant here in the States, you know, can lock you up without due process that's constitutionally illegal and the constitution is supposed to be the law of our land. So regardless, the fact that they have gone out of their way to try to put something on the books that makes it okay for them to do this without our knowledge or consent is reason enough for us all to question everything that we see because the news has become grand theater. You know, I remember watching 
you know, Lisa and I, we decided, you know, what are we going to watch tonight? Oh, let's watch it. You know, it was Battle Los Angeles or something. You know, aliens are coming to attack the planet. This is fun. And so we're watching, you know, the film and, you know, the early stages, you know, they're showing television news scenes of, you know, talking about, oh, you know, there are these meteors from outer space kind of heading our way and we need to be concerned, etc. And anyway, it all looked like an everyday news story, like we might see on any evening news, only it was obviously contrived in a movie. And then, of course, next thing you know, the aliens are attacking and they're showing scenes, you know, with the disheveled reporter standing there and, you know, ducking because, you know, things are getting fired and buildings are collapsing and people are laying dead all over the place. And, you know, it's it's obviously a scene from a movie, but it was indistinguishable from any other kind of news, how you might see another news broadcast kind of put together. And, you know, it becomes impossible to know what to believe. We know CBS News has been caught with its pants down multiple times where they were showing in one morning news program, and I'll get off this in a second here, they were showing scenes, you know, at the, at the height of what was happening in New York City, of, you know, the whole pandemic in New York City. They showed people, you know, physicians wearing, virtually wearing hazmat suits and masks and scurrying around busy ICUs and people laying on gurneys and whatever else. And they implied that these were scenes from New York hospitals when in fact that same footage had been released a week earlier in a particularly hard-hit area of northern Italy. It was the same exact footage that they used. There was another day they were all talking about, oh, you know, showing lines and lines of people crowding around all the hospitals and standing in line waiting to be tested, wearing masks and, you know, gasping for air and whatever. And, oh, you see that car over there, that huge canister, whatever, you know, the thing that you you see on the back of, of 18-wheeler pickup trucks that's parked up against the building. That's our makeshift morgue and all this stuff. And then, you know, the next morning, people are going out with their cell phones. You know, the citizen journalists are going out with their cell phones and filming those same locations. And there's nothing but crickets. Nothing is happening. The emergency rooms are empty. During the height of the pandemic in Los Angeles, there weren't more than 18 people in the emergency room being treated for this, you know? It was a big campaign in the media, which you have to understand, even from a, if there was no such thing as Operation Mug, if there was no such thing as a National Defense Authorization Act and all of the other things that seemed to give them license to lie to us, you know, you have to realize that the mainstream news isn't going to get viewership without sensationalism. It is in their best interest to keep you frightened and to keep you tuning in for more. So... The healthiest thing you can possibly do, if I could just make one recommendation for everybody for their physical and mental health and well-being right now, it's just turn off the bloody news. <laughs> and and there's, there's been research to show that it, it actually harms your mental health. It harms your intelligence. It harms your capacity to think, your ability to think creatively. It literally damages your immune function. It damages everything. There is no good that can come from watching the news. There's nothing about the news that gives you a sense of anything of value, that gives you a sense of anything you can do with your life, you know, to deal with it constructively. It teaches you learned helplessness. Mm. It's there to overwhelm you and to clutter your thinking and to destroy your ability to even focus long enough to think about anything. So anyway. Well... We've definitely had a good dose of critical thinking and truthful thinking from you today, Nora. I want to tell you that I love you. We love you. 
Nick sends her love to you and Lisa, and I can't wait to share this as quickly as possible with the world. So we'll get you back for round two. Thank you so much, my sister. Oh, thank you, Pete. Thank you so much. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows, and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions, or conclusions expressed or